Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a good morning to everyone out there. It's David McLean here with... Jan Goldsmith on the side. And we've got an array of uh, authors in our studio all ready and, and rearing and to go. And they're repeat offenders. Repeat offenders too. This is amazing. But did you realise, Jan, the end of the world is nigh? Well, this is what uh, I'm on about with my book. Just how plausible is a dystopian future where the social fabric unravels and just how would people behave? Well, Bren McDibble explores the potential in her new children's novel, The Dog Runner. So, Bren, welcome back to 3CR. Thank you very much. Society's unravelling here and you've actually provided a very interesting cause, if I may Read out from page 55. There's dead dirt everywhere. Dad said he never realised before how much grass we used to eat. Bread and rice and noodles and corn and meat and dairy and even his beer, all made of grass. He said he was just another cow about to starve. Then he shook his head and looked at me like he shouldn't have said that. How did we get so that most of our food came from one kind of plant? All our eggs were in one basket, he said to me, but not really expecting an answer. I said, don't worry, Dad. Baskets are made of grass and eggs came from wheat-eating chooks, so we don't do that again. He wrestled me and called me cheeky and rubbed my short-clipped hair for that. I smile, thinking about him, and fall asleep with him so close. The potential for a dystopian future like that. Yes, um, there is a fungus... um that's what has killed all the grass in my book. That takes off every 10 years or so, every decade, and makes a sort of an evolutionary leap and gets out of control. Um, I think the last time was Uganda in 1999, where they basically raised crops. And, and so it is a plausible It's a element. plausible thing. Possibly I have gone a little bit overboard by taking out corn and rice as well as basic grass. But I thought, you know, let's... It's fiction. Let's just take out every grass-based Well, fiction, <laughs> but when you look at what's taking place scientifically, genetic engineering of plants, and they're resistant to everything, but something's bound to come along and uh, change yes. Yes. the equation. I don't think people realise how much of our food is based on grass um, over time. All the, the grains that we have been eating have kind of taken over from fruits and vegetables to a large extent. But we tend to rely on only certain types. Certain types, um, the types that last longest and, you know, store well. This fits into your sort of interest and focus because How to Be was your first book which looked at uh, what would happen if we lost bees. If we lost bees, and yeah, um, that took out all fruits and vegetables. So this is kind of the reverse. We've basically lost everything except fruits and vegetables. <laughs> but in response to this, of course, society unravels, and you even reference Lord of the Flies. People go feral. Yes, um, this is a children's book, and I've tried to handle it very delicately. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, um 
society, it, it's a little bit scary because it's right in the middle of the famine. The famine has started and people are um, grabbing at the food and grabbing at resources and leaving the city and things like that. So it's a little bit um, a little bit scarier than how to be. But, uh, you know, I've tried to handle it delicately. But, yeah, when there's no food, how do you stay in a city? And things unravel so very, very quickly. Very quickly. The- and, you know, the government is making promises to stop people from just becoming feral, but... But there's this very thin veneer of society and civilization that there soon really unravels. Is. There really is, yeah. But I used to teach Lord of the Flies and point out to my students that it was also possible. No, Mr McLean, that can't, can't happen. I said, next time it happens, I'll show you. And, of course, during the course of the lesson, someone would make a comment, somebody would have to reply to that comment, and soon it would be running through the class. And I'd just say, well, there you are. There's that feral element... And it's all unravelling. Yes. Talks about my lack of control in the classroom, basically. <laughs> um, now, therefore, you, we need to sort of put uh, fill out the picture. We've got two characters mainly here, Ella and Emery. Ella's uh, 10, 11, Emery's yes. 14. But they're alone and starving. What has brought that about? Um, well, all essential personnel who uh, were needed to keep the city running were frozen at their workplaces on a particular day when the government decided things were about to get out of control. So um, Ella's mother has been stuck trying to get the power grid, keep the power grid going. Um, And once the power grid fails, her dad goes and looks for the mum because they need to get out of the city, but they don't want to go and leave her behind. Um, so he's gone to look for her, and neither of them come back. So the kids are left alone at their flat, having to survive. But yes. now this is what is another interesting uh, undercurrent in the story: they're half siblings. Yes. Yes. Why did you choose to make them half siblings? Um, well, I wanted to reflect modern society. There's lots of amalgamated families. Um, it's Emery's mother's family that they're going to see in the country. Um, and Emery's mother is half Afghani and half Aboriginal. And I find this layering interesting because it's sort of a norm that is not necessarily uh, discussed and it's it's not the, the main feature. It's just like yeah. it's normal part of society. Well, that's, that's common for Ella who's telling the story. She's yeah. perfectly happy with her amalgamated family and she loves her... Loves her big brother, so it's all perfectly normal to hear. And I wanted to introduce um, an Aboriginal people's character because I wanted to talk about the history of grass. Yes, which becomes quite important as, yeah. as the novel progresses. If it's a novel about grass in Australia, yes. you have to include all the grass. And, so. and the integration there of, of layering yeah. of, of different groups that came into uh, the country. But it's this journey where um, we're going to Emery's home. Uh, that becomes the compelling narrative. And um, this is where you introduce some other interesting characters, for they are really, in many ways, characters. Marucci, bear, wolf, oyster, squid. What's going on there? (laughs) They are malamutes and huskies. Um, I wanted a way for the children to travel across the land fairly quickly and fairly 
safely. And I thought, what could be better than five big dogs? <laughs> um, and I was absolutely fascinated with the sport. I mean, you see in Australia, you see people um, going to forest at 6am or 6pm when it's cool and getting towed by scooters and little carts through forest trails with these dogs running and having the time of their lives. But I think it also raises some other interesting aspects. Family, for example. Yeah, yeah. You know, dogs pretty much are our family. They think they're our family. Well, so they, yeah. But don't uh, deny them that. <laughs> I mean, the novel starts with um, Ella playing with Marucci and, and such like, and then there's a, also a hierarchy amongst these dogs. Yes. What led you to that? I know you're trying to get them quickly across the landscape, but how did you sort of fall in on on that as the as the choice that you went with? Um, well, I wanted I wanted um, Ella to feel safe, and I thought, you know, when the world goes crazy, how do you protect your family? How do you feed a meat-eating dog when there's no grass to even feed a cow? And, um, yeah, they... They eat a lot of fish. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I, I just wanted to have her to have someone to occasionally lean on, and Marucci is the lead dog. Mm. She's a very wise old dog, and she's very protective. But you would have had to have done a fair bit of research in many ways about... Yeah, well, I'm a farm sleep. kid, so I've grown up with working dogs. Right. Um, yeah, and, yeah, I don't have any huskies or malamutes. They're just too big and energetic for me, but... <laughs> They're not necessarily, the, yeah, the neighbourhood dog. They're, they're, they're not necessarily the neighbourhood they dog. They're good space. if you're big into sports yeah. and you want to run. They love to run. Now, these characters, this journey leads to some very interesting sort of issues that that emerge. Children taking greater responsibility is perhaps one that comes out of this. Yes. Yeah, children um, these days, they're very knowledgeable about the world around them. And they often get worried when they see things that um, climate change is affecting things and they can't always express that. Um, but what I wanted to do was kind of just start a conversation um, so they can learn to talk about things in terms of fiction where it's safe maybe and have um, books in schools where maybe teachers will talk about climate change concerns well, like and to sort of give them a vocabulary to... And it's children that seem to be leading the way in many ways because we can't necessarily rely on the adults. They have got amazing morales, children, these days. They're very high morales. Yeah. Concept of family is raised yes. in many ways. And uh, not broken families necessarily, but mixed um, heritage families and such like, which is very important. Um, and the notions of duty, responsibility and all that comes with that. Yes. Yeah, even if your family's kind of an amalgamated family or, or pushed together bits of family, you know, they're your people and you've got to look out for them. So. And then when you say people, you do raise that interesting concept which we've alluded to with Emery. Uh, and Bar was teaching me stuff about the land and our people. So I asked him to tell Ma and Grandma to let me stay, but he told me to go and live with my dad until I finished high school. He said that there were lots of parts to me, and if I ignored some of them, I'd never know who I truly was. He said I had to know all my people, because he never did. He said I already knew my grandma's ways, her Afghani food and customs at least, and I already knew some of what he had to teach me, but I needed to know my father's ways too. So children have got a lot on their plate learning 
the heritage. Yeah. And it's so important. Yeah, it, it's interesting. Sort of, I don't know, I always grew up as a displaced white person, so I don't really have any culture. So I always think that it's some people are just so lucky to have that culture to fall back on and those traditions and that food and, and to know who they are. One of the upshots, um, when I was teaching, we had a presentation from an Indigenous uh, gentleman uh, talking about the culture of the Indigenous, to which one child then piped up um, from a white European background, yeah, but what's our culture? <laughs> so, you know, sort of lost. Uh, we didn't obviously do a very good job teaching. Of course, then, the environment. That's the huge uh, thread, the dangers etc that you pose here yeah the environment and um in particular its effect on food security is both my books have dealt with food security i listened to a scientist um speak at a science fiction convention a few years ago and ever since then um, my mind has just been tuned to sort of every aspect of food security what can go wrong and when our farmers get run into the ground and then imports start coming in, I think the moment something goes wrong, the borders shut down, and our farmers aren't in a position to go back to the land and get well, it you can't you can't revitalise because no. it's, yeah, it's trade, and so the produce will stop producing here, will import. But yeah. if something goes wrong with the import export chain, yes, we, we've lost. We lost that. We have absolutely no security if we don't have food security, and you can see the government pours money into helping out America or buying weapons and you think, well, no, how about pouring a bit of money into the, into the farmers? <laughs> you do provide a solution. Now, I don't know how far we can, in fact, uh, take that because the reader should uh, explore and investigate for themselves. Just how mm. much can you tell us? Well, I don't know. How much do you think I can tell you <laughs> well, I don't without want to, giving it away? Without giving it away. But you've, you've sort of alluded to it in, to a certain extent about the range in the country and being aware of the history of uh, the landscape and yes. grasses in Australia, things that have been brought in and all sorts of things. Yes. So there might be perhaps something in that chain that we could possibly address, uh, so to speak. Um, we won't go too much further on that. But then just as a, a, a last question, you've chosen uh, a 10-year-old child. Your mm. other how-to-be was also from that child's perspective, that age group. How challenging is it to write with that voice in mind? Um, I don't find it challenging, Possibly I'm still 10 in my head somewhere. Um, it's it's just that very simple approach. Her, You can sort of feel how much she knows about the world and then when you're telling the story, you only use that. So her judgment is a little bit black and white and possibly a little bit naive but always good-hearted and accurate. And it evolves as she and, progresses. And it evolves. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, we're going to have to draw the interview to a conclusion there. The book is The Dog Runner by uh, Bren McDibble, and it's an Alan and Unwin release. Thank you, yes. Bren. Thank you. 
Well, I'm going to think, make you think about last year and forgetting the banks and the royal commissions and politics. I'm sure one of the stories that sparked our interest was the babies from Bataan. These babies were co-joined twins who were successfully surgically separated. Did you wonder, as I did, how they felt to be so close and then taken apart? I'm welcoming back Kate Richards. Now, how did you take twins into fiction? Ah, thank you for having me, Jan. It's lovely to be here. I think there are sort of questions that I'm always asking myself about the world and, and I don't have the answers and I'm always wondering. And one of them is um, a very broad question and that is how we come to our own sense of identity, um, how we come to understand ourselves and whether that's um, an accurate, realistic understanding or whether that's sometimes not accurate but a safer, more livable understanding of ourselves. And along those lines, I started thinking about what it might be like if a pair of identical twins were uh, living a completely isolated life away from any other people uh, who might help to form their identity. And so really here they are with exactly the same genetics living in exactly the same environment. And I started thinking about what kind of relationship would they have with each other and how would they come to understand themselves and would they see themselves as one person or would they see themselves as two completely separate uh, people in, in, all, in all ways. And then because this book is fiction, mm-hmm. I thought, uh, could I really extend or challenge or explode that dynamic to an extreme. I know you're a doctor and I know you're very good at medical research and stuff and I would like you to read that first paragraph of of, uh, fusion because I thought it was all true. I thought it was biologically possible. That's the way you've written it. Sure. In the beginning, we were a single pluripotent embryo that was so burst full of genetic potential it considered becoming two embryos and then partway through this most delicate of processes changed its mind. We were born in the deepest part of the night when the moon was dark and the clouds low. Venus and Mars were obscured and the stars stopped blinking for a whole heartbeat. Now, if we turn our heads in to the right or the left as far as they'll go, 30 degrees, and look to the right or left till our eyes ache, we can see each other's cheek, but not each other's eyes. Well, we get to meet these 29-year-olds and we get their backstories in pieces. So uh, <laughs> page 62 has got only four words on it, on it. We killed our mother. Why do they wonder about their mother? I suppose in my mind um, the backstory is that uh, their mother died in childbirth, in giving birth to them, and uh, their father, uh, on seeing the physiology of the the twins, um, is so horrified that he leaves, uh, and they're put into a home for disabled children called Hope Home, At Hope Home, we are a child of the devil, cloven and deformed, an example to the whole world of evil, the illegitimate spawn of sinners. 
they prayed for us. They prayed that we wouldn't live long, that death would find us swiftly. We had fallen so low, there was nowhere else to go. Now, I think of this physically, we better say, that they escaped from um, that horrible hope home. And where did they escape to? So the only information that they have about their past about their family and their and their own small history is a photograph of um, some land or they have several photographs actually of some land up in the alpine wilderness uh, which belonged to their grandfather and on the back of one of the photographs is the address and a, and a hand-drawn map uh, and the land is still in inverted commas, owned uh, by the family, uh, which in itself is very contentious because, uh, as it turns out, their grandfather appropriated or stole the land from the local Indigenous nation um, that had been living on, mm-hmm. and uh, living on that land um, and that was part of their culture and language for probably thousands and thousands of years. And because they're sensitive souls, they can mm. feel that too. They do, and um, they live with their cousin Ren, who also has a deep sense of what that land um, entails in terms of spirit and culture. Now, the twins don't want to go into the city, or, or not the city, it's a little town called Swigan. Uh, have we mentioned what the twins disability is? Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about that. Uh, what I found really interesting in, in my initial research on conjoined t- twins was actually that there's so many different kinds of conjoined twins. In a physical sense, I mean, obviously, in an emotional sense, there is too. Um, but they're all quite unique. And many of them don't survive through the first couple of uh, weeks of life, um, which, of course, is is a great tragedy. But those that do... Uh, will have very different physiology in terms of which parts of them are joined and which parts aren't. So uh, C and Serene, the conjoined twins in this book, have two heads uh, and one only one complete body. So they don't actually understand what their anatomy is like inside. They imagine it. They don't actually know how many hearts they have or how many lungs they have. Um, They do know that one of them controls the left arm and leg and one of them controls the right arm and leg. And Mm. so every single tiny movement, thought, action um, that they perform requires the the cooperation of the other twin. And so that's the crux of the drama. Oh, it is, it is. Okay, well, um, this Angus, he's got contact in town of Swigan where he does trading and brings home books because the twins are big readers. They're curious and they're intelligent and you give them some very snappy dialogue (laughs) between the two of them. You know, they're isolated, they have good times with kumquat liqueur and homegrown weed and I love that that you explain that it's good high, no paranoia weed. (laughs) They have a sincere love of the country, from climbing the mountains to swimming in the creek. There's beautiful writing that you do about this, Kate Richards, absolutely beautiful. They want to be loved and they love nature and maybe nature loves them. There's the animals and the snow gums that get description and then this storm page 35 as the storm moves closer to as sorry as the storm moves closer the birds go silent no wind either everything waiting us waiting too then a sliver of a crack 
and thunder rolls out across the boggy plain, pushing in front of it the dense hot summer air. Up here we're part of the air and part of the storm, and we hear the song in it. No rain yet. Listen. And we do. Wait for lightning. Wait for her to show us the way to the sky, to the stars. Here she comes through the clouds, bright-eyed. Thunder responds, flexing firsts, fist up, fists up like a boxer, then punching right into the sky's face, flinging the air all about and the sound ringing through the ground. Mm, I can feel that. You know, I think we had a bit of that last night. <laughs> yeah, did. Absolutely. Um, they're also prepared for what they call the hounds and these mm. aren't the nice dogs of your book Bren these are scary <laughs> hounds so how has their cousin Angus Wren prepared them? Wren is uh, a complicated young man uh, he is as you very rightly put Jan in our little pre-interview discussion running very hard from himself mm. uh, and he doesn't quite recognise that it's himself he's running from. Um, so he prepares the twins in case of the arrival of any strange people that they don't know. Uh, I think he he sees a great deal of the outside world as a threat. So he teaches them how to shoot and he mm. has a shotgun um, and he also has a revolver. Um, and one of which he stole and one of which he bought. Uh, so he takes them out into the country and teaches them how to load the shotgun and how to shoot and how to shoot straight and how to run. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think he, some of his, I suppose you could call it paranoia uh, around uh, other people and not trusting other people does filter through um, and kind of envelops the twins as well. The twins, up until this stage, their only worry is, quoting from the book, our only worry in the world is that one day Wren won't come back. Well, this one time he does come back, but he has a very strange cargo. What is it? He is driving into the town of Swigan. So the the three characters live up on a mountain and uh, it takes about two hours to get to the nearest town and he's got this beat-up old um, 1968 truck and he's driving it down the mountain and he comes across a woman who's lying unconscious on the side of the road and he initially thinks that he'll try and take her into town but it's actually closer to get back home and because he has such mistrust of other people mm. uh, rather than doing the sensible thing which would be to drive her into town for some medical help he turn, he puts her in the truck turns around and drives straight back home and of course the twins know about healing and healing the body and uh, they she's unconscious and when she does wake up there's no memory but I like this this is a bit of their twin twin humor because she raises from the dead, they, they say, oh, we'll call you Lazarus. <laughs> Angus doesn't like that. <laughs> no, he, he, he's not impressed. Um, and in fact, they end up calling her Christ because they decide <laughs> that she's a resurrection of some kind. Um, and uh, that's the word that they have um, for her. And that, that then is her name for the remainder of the book. So the twins think they've found a friend, but Wren, Angus, feels about her differently. So, um, what you know, will she stay? Will the twins develop the friendship with her, or is it just for uh, Angus? Look, you, you give us a lot. You know, there's envy, there's um, friendship. We 
finished the uh, part one. Part two has a completely different storyteller. Ren and Christ are lost in the fog. And part three, the outcome. Look, I just, I was amazed by this book. I know it's in, it's called, kind of called gothic. And when you think gothic, you think sinister. And I'm thinking Frankenstein. Mm. But the twins don't have that, do they? No, and it's really interesting, this gothic thing. It keeps coming up. It's not something that I was aware of in writing the book. And I don't read a lot of gothic literature. So, uh, you know, I'm I'm more than happy if people find that uh, in the work. I think... I am interested in works where there are really unusual characters and there's a sense of uh, menace and maybe transgression. And I think maybe that's where the gothic comes well, in. When you talk about identity, in that part three, when the twins actually find their identity away from each other, oh, my goodness, it's, it's, it's amazing. And I've got to say, the cover of this book, when you know it's about co-joined twins, the cover, cover is an um, original liner cut by... Eaton Nevins, I think. Peter Nevins, Peter Nevins, yes. It is phenomenal. It really is. It's absolutely stunning. Um, and You look at it, yep. there's two heads, or is there one? Yes, that's right. And which way are they looking? Are they looking to the left or the right? It, it's really, I think it's quite brilliant. Dominating voices. Oh, the whole thing. Oh, look, I know David's looking at the clock, and I could go on forever about this book. It is, it is a most unusual read, but... Looking for Identity, Mm. I think you nailed it there. The book by Kate Richards is called Fusion and uh, Hamish Hamish Hamilton. And I had been talking to Bren McDibble about The Dog Runner from Alan and Unwin. Aren't we lucky to have this to get these books to read? Thank you very much, fine authors. And (laughs) we will have more fine authors next week.